Hello and welcome to Axlander, a podcast about and for all of you who have left their home to find a new one abroad. One of the great things about living abroad is that you get to meet really interesting people with amazing stories and situations you would never expect. And perhaps those situations would never happen if you didn't move abroad in the first place. Well, that exactly happened to me. Last week, I had the honor to be speaking to Václav, an honorary consul of Czechia and Switzerland, whom I contacted because I needed to have certain paperwork done, as I couldn't really travel to my country due to coronavirus. We started chatting, and I was instantly thinking, I need this gentleman on my podcast so that more people can hear his story. And I was so glad that he agreed and said yes. And so in this episode, you can enjoy the time travel, which starts back in 1963, through the fall of the Berlin Wall, all the way to Switzerland today. So have a listen whenever and wherever you're listening to Axlander and enjoy. So Václav, over to you. Thank you very much, Eva. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast. I like your podcast a lot. I enjoyed the recent, uh, the latest episode very much with with Jennifer Preston from from Prague. It was really great. Thanks. Yeah, pleasure to be here. So to my story, I'm born 1963 in the famous beer city of České Budějovice, which is better known under the German name Budweis or Budweis. So the famous Budweiser comes from not the American lemonade, but our original good stuff. And, uh, <laughs> and I was born in a family of a pharmacist and a nurse, and we've been a Roman Catholic and former capitalist family. So my grandfather was one of the biggest textile dealers in, uh, the, in the entire South Bohemian region. And uh, as it was normal at those times, 1948, the communists has nationalized his property. And, and this was like a burden lying on the entire family combination with, uh, with the Roman Catholic faith and that my uncle emigrated to South Africa. So we had pretty difficult times. It's, I think uh, I need to elaborate on this a little bit more in a bigger detail because it's something people and your generation cannot imagine that well how difficult th- those times has been. Absolutely, absolutely. This is vital because my generation, you know, I grew up in the 90s. I'm in, I was born in 1986, so it was pretty much non-existent. Like for us, it's very hard to imagine. So it was our parents' generation that actually lived through this and through these difficult times. So yeah, can you elaborate on this? So basically, as my grandfather lost his whole property in 1948, the, the regime called them, you are so-called former people. You know, basically you have nothing to say in this new kind of society of working class and farmers and so on. Yeah, my dad had to, had to leave the university after, after finishing his fourth semester of pharmacy and he ended up 30 months in a coal mine. And he was very, very lucky that he could return to studies because most of his friends who has been together with him in the coal mine didn't get the chance and ended up and spent their entire life with manual work. So he was, he was pretty lucky on this. And my sister is born 1960 and my sister Jana is much smarter than me, much more hardworking person <laughs> than me. She's very, very talented. She can do beautiful drawings. She can write like a journalist. She's really super, super smart in mathematics and everything, very strong on languages. And at those times, if you have been a Roman Catholic, you had really difficulties to enter higher education. So for example, uh, when my sister was 14 years old and wanted to go to the high school, the high school director forced her to sign a declaration that her parents are pushing her and she has to go to church. 
And she smiled at him and told him, okay, I'm going on my free will. And this was the end of her higher education. And she was very, very happy that she could learn as a textile dealer and didn't have to go to, to work manually in a factory. So those has been those very, very difficult times. Right. So basically those times, and this is what we then, what my generation and people younger than me know from textbooks and from school and from our parents uh, and grandparents. So those were very hard times for people who owned property, who owned businesses. And because everything was basically confiscated and nationalized and socialism and communism was declared, it was not only people being punished, but also people dying in coal mines. So your father was very lucky, right, not to, you know, like to save his life at least. Absolutely, because there have been several dead people just due to injuries, you know, the, the coal mine collapsing. Some people committed suicide because they just couldn't cope with this, with this horrible fate of their families back home. Yeah, it was very, very, those times has been really, really nasty. And we've been already lucky to be born in the so-called like easy 60s, which was no comparison to the 50s when the regime was really, really killing people. It was a very hard Stalinist regime, right? It was dark times. Absolutely. Me, I'm two and a half years younger than my sister and I was lucky until today. I don't know why exactly, but <laughs> I was admitted to the high school, probably due to two reasons, because I won some biologic Olympic games in the, in the, in the city which allowed me to enter the high school without exam. Probably I was like flying under the radar a little bit, but it was the same primary school and the same high school. So the same people simply three years later. And second reason was probably our class teacher. She was from Ukraine and she loved me very much because I was very good in Russian and everything. And everybody was afraid of her because she was from the mighty Soviet Union. So I assume she went there and she pushed for me. That's the only reason I can imagine why I could enter the high school. My sister couldn't. Right, because those times were basically, it was not about your free will entering an education, about your skills. It was really higher authorities deciding about your fate. Yes. And that is terrible. Yeah, that's the way it was. And it was, I started the, the very special primary school, which was focused on languages. And it was just excellent. You couldn't believe how great this education was. We could speak at the age of 14, three languages on very good level. We had, we had Russian from the third class, English from the fifth class, and I was doing German in my free time. So my parents sent me in the German classes at the age of eight. So it was really, really great. If you would, you can imagine, but we had a lab and you could record yourself, you could record your pronunciation and everything. It was, it was just simply fantastic. But then the communist regime decided, okay, this is all nonsense, this humanistic science, we need natural science and technique. They closed all those specific primary school, they closed all, all high school speci yeah. specifically for languages. And then I had to go to the natural science high school. Right. Okay. And then, so you are a chemist by education, right? Exactly. And chemistry was nothing which I was really excited about. I had pretty good exams of chemistry. That's why I decided to go there because at those times there was, you had a choice. Either you find something after your high school diploma, which uh, allows you to study or you go, go for two years to military service, which was not something really uh, appealing to me. So mm. at the end, my sister find out that there is a uh, chemistry on the Charles University and there all but almost no one wants to study there. So I applied there, I passed the exam and this was the reason I started to study chemistry. If I could, I would study history or languages or something like this. 
Yeah, but that was like politically not very, you know, that was not politically convenient. Absolutely. I was fascinated those time by environmental protection. I remember since the age of 13, I was collecting all those horrible news about tankers, pillages and this kind of stuff. And I wanted to mm -hmm. study, study environmental science, which just opened at the year when I could go to the university. But there was such a high overload by kids for, for communist families. So I knew you have basically no chance to pass this. So... And I ended up with chemistry. Okay, so when we wrap this up, you basically come from a very, let's say, affluent background, right? Like, you know, your family, I mean, your father owned a business and he worked very, very hard to f for that business. And that was seen as an enemy of the state at that time. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And grandfather grandfather owned the business and there at those times you used to punish the, the parents through their kids. So it was clear dismiss people from the universities, send them to coal mines or whatsoever, you know, and they have been even much, much uh, worse situation, like people spending 10 years in, in uranium digging and stuff yeah. like this. So 30 months in the coal mine sounded for some of those as a pretty good choice yeah. still. Yeah. Oh, terrible times. I mean, we can be really glad. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't even, I can't even express how privileged we are, our generation, you know, to grow up in times that are normal, you know, that this is not repeating itself. And this is all over. Yeah. Okay. And then afterwards, what happened afterwards? Like, how did you end up in Switzerland? Because we need to start, or we need to go all the way back to 1986, right? Or 1980. <laughs> yeah, so 1986 was the year when I finished my, my analytical chemistry studies and at that time a friend of mine came to me and told me, you know, uh, two Swiss ladies are going to visit Prague and I don't speak German. Would you be able to help me? I said, yes, for sure, because I was really proud to show people from, from the West how beautiful Prague is as a city, how rich is our cultural heritage. And so that was my motivation. And my friend didn't speak any German. Today he speaks fluently. His name is Robert Hugo and is a, a great expert on Baroque music and has his own orchestra called mm -hmm. Capella Regia. So you can find him even on, on, on Wikipedia. And he's digging out old Baroque uh, music from old monasteries and, uh, and making, making music out of it. So, and yeah, so the two Swiss lady came. We showed them, we showed them Prague. Robert was giving us private concerts in every church because he has keys of all Prague churches because he's a great organ player. Yeah, and nothing happened at the end. A kiss on the cheek, the Swiss lady went home and, <laughs> <laughs> and I had to go to the military service to the infantry. That was my, my fate, 1986. So I started to work in the Institute of Clinical and Experimental Medicine for a few months. And then in October, I went to Mikulov for one month and then I spent, I spent another 11 nice, uh, months of my military service in Znoimo in South Moravia. And what happened next? <laughs> I got so bored in the military service that I decided, oh, this Swiss lady was pretty nice. Let's write her a letter. So I okay. wrote my, my, I wrote Isabella a letter and I got a ma like Two weeks later, a fantastic answer. Oh, it was so beautiful, you guys. You have made such a great program for us. Prague is my second home and stuff like this. And you cannot imagine how privileged you felt when you've been in this stupid military. You've been like basically like locked up like in a prison. Okay. And you suddenly get a letter with beautiful envelope with Helvetia Swiss post stamps. <laughs> Just <laughs> that was just fantastic, and yeah, and we starting to write letter to each other, mm -hmm. 
And somehow, you writing letters to each other, we fell in love. Oh, the world needs more love stories, especially these days. So tell us yours. <laughs> How did it <laughs> go on? And, we, and so we, yeah, at those times, you know, there was no internet. Yeah. Telephone calls has been horribly expensive. They are just unbelievable. And so we keeping uh, writing letters to each other and we ha both of us collected those letters. We both of them kept them. We have all of those letters in a box mm -hmm. and <laughs> we never opened the box again. So which is which is really a funny story. When we when we had our 25th anniversary, we saw we going open and no, they are still in the box. So we just um, we just had our 31st anniversary mm -hmm. and the letters are still closed in the box. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and somehow in 1998, so I went out from the military in 87 and 98 Isabella invited me to visit her in Switzerland. And for, for sure the younger generation cannot imagine how difficult it was at those times to travel. Yeah, I can only, I mean, I know from my parents that, um, you know, who wanted to travel to the Netherlands in like the 1970s, that it just took them a year to get all the paperwork done. And it was, they would be spied on, you know, and they would have to go to like interrogations, whether they met certain spies from other countries. Like it was crazy, crazy days, crazy times. Yeah, it was no, no, not big difference. You need to start to prepare it like six months in advance. Mm -hmm. And first of all, the regime was doing it very, very clever. So you had your passport, but without a specific piece of paper which was inserted into the passport, you basically couldn't get out. Mm -hmm, of course. It was the famous Vyezdnyoloshka. Right. And with this, to get this piece of paper, you need to visit your employer. You need to visit, get the authorization by the military authorities. I don't know from whom. And then if you got this paperwork, you have been allowed to ask for visa and for sure everybody who wanted to go west needs to pass germany mm -hmm. so and to go to to get a german visa there was such a huge queue on the embassy that you need to sleep on the street in front of the of the uh, german Ger embassy Ger german embassy yes this was it and those was those times you you, you simply can can imagine how how it was 1988 and i have another nice uh, memories of the embassy later when the Germans has been flowing from the German Democratic Republic to, to the Western Germany. Yes, through Prague, so, uh, the, right? That was all through Prague. Yeah, and Prague was full with Trabants <laughs> and, and the people has been like 5,000 people has been stuck in the in the embassy of Germany. So in and we brought them diapers and, and baby milk and stuff like this to support them. Those been it's it's nice to live in, in the moments when the history is moving, you know, where there's something going on. It still fills me with a lot of emotion when I when I think think back to those times. So nineteen eighty eight in summer, so I got all this paperwork and all visa. I went for Austrian visa as well and for uh, for visa for Italy just for the sake to being prepared if we would like to travel somewhere. Austria was easy. There was like three hours of waiting time only and Italy was very, very quick. So this was it. And then I went to Switzerland and it was clear to me I'm in love with that girl. Mm -hmm. And my wife had the same feeling. So basically we fell in love immediately, imme immediately after, after coming to, to Switzerland. And yeah, and then this difficult uh, relationship started. So imagine you are stuck somewhere without phone, only with letters, without internet, and you have long distance relationship. So those times has been really, really difficult. On the other hand, it has been sometimes even very funny mm -hmm. and yeah, dramatic in some cases. 
So if I wouldn't be, if I wouldn't be so lazy, I would write a script script book about our love story and sell it to Hollywood. You, de <laughs> you definitely <laughs> should. You know, like let's say when you when you're retired. Maybe that's what you can do. <laughs> yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It would be great to the 40th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm -hmm. But let's go back to 88. So we fell in love first and then Isabella visited me in uh, November 7th, you know, the famous socialist October Revolution Day. So we <laughs> picked her up with our asthmatic Škoda 105 on the on the airport <laughs> and then she then we spent a great week together in the, in the flat of our of our of our friends and then she came again with her daughter Rebecca which was small at the time she was four years old mm -hmm. or five years old and she came over over Easter yeah and then in summer 89 I visited her again in Switzerland and there was the decision you know if you would like to have life together we need to go ahead mm -hmm. and so then we decided to to get married and then this entire very very difficult situation to get married to a foreign citizen in the communist regime started mm -hmm. well tell us more about it <laughs> yeah so at those times you needed to have a Every document you need for, for get married, you need to get translated in the other language. Mm -hmm. This translation has to be verified by an expert and you have to pass all those documents via diplomatic service through the Swiss embassy to Switzerland and back from Switzerland back to Czechia. So it was back and forth and back and forth. I don't know how many times I was on the Swiss embassy in the Pevnostní street in Prague. Mm -hmm. And I was amazed how friendly the people are you know and this this contrast mm -hmm. with the rude czech clerks mm -hmm. in our offices and in switzerland look like absolute paradise yeah yeah i can imagine that and especially in those times and but you referred to it as czechia but then we're still talking czechoslovakia right like you know the former yeah. czechoslovakia end of the 80s exactly yes sorry no 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 no, no worries. I think that the Czechia is a great, great name, and it can describe the country's in, in entire history. That's why. That's why I'm using it. I'm so. I'm. I'm so used to it. Yeah, yeah. It's a simple. The same story as we call Poland, Poland, not Republic Poland or Germany. We call Germany Germany, even if Germany didn't exist before 1871. And yeah. right. So. No, it's great. I'm all for it. So yeah. Very good. Yeah, and then, uh, then. <laughs> Again, it was the classical situation. You need to know someone who helps you to get the things done. So my, my dad knew someone on the municipality of Budweis and the person gave us the date for our marriage. Mm -hmm. And we need to, uh, normally you need to deliver all paperwork and then you, the clock start ticking and three months later you can get married. And we made a shortcut. So she told her, okay, I give you the 11th of November, 1989 but you need to deliver the whole paperwork before. Okay. And the latest latest document, when my wife booked the flight to to go to her own wedding, we still <laughs> haven't been sure if we can get married because the last document came in a week before the, the, the marriage and everything was arranged already. So it was very, very dramatic. Okay. And those times, you know, the German people has been fleeing fleeing to to over Hungary, to, to Austria, through the embassy and you really you've been really feeling there is something going on and at the end we got married today after the fall of the berlin wall so <laughs> i still see us sitting in front of the tv i have goosebumps still today yeah when you see the and it was clear if if eastern germany is collapsing so the communist regime will collapse in my country as well and yeah because i was i my decision was okay i get married i try to get the the regular go legal way out of the country, but it could take you at those times like two years. Yeah. 
and that was my decision so i would like to because i wanted to see my parents go back you know and if you would would go like an emigrant basically the communists wouldn't get you let you yeah. let you back yeah. so uh, that was the situation after 68 when people emigrated and they haven't been allowed to visit their old parents uh, graves and going to their funerals so yeah. this kind of stuff so those are very very sorry those are very very sad stories i mean i i met a, a couple of Czech immigrants and Slovak immigrants and they're in their sort of like 70s, 80s now. And uh, yeah, they had very, very many sad stories uh, living here in Switzerland and basically not being able to go to a funeral of their own mother because, you know, they were there was a file against them and they were enemies of the state. Terrible times, really. And they were it's it's an emotional time, I guess, the break and uh, the fall Absolutely. of communism. Absolutely. I mean, for, <laughs> my, for my parents, this is still and not only my parents, for the whole generation, it is still very emotional and um, yeah, I can I can sort of see why. I mean, I was three years old, so I didn't really get it that, that much. But yeah, from what they're from their stories and from your story, you know, it's just breathtaking. Yeah, we are. I mean, you basically were like writing, not, not writing history, but you were there when, you know, like a big historical event happened. Yeah, tomorrow is the 17th of November yeah. and on 17th November this was the famous students demonstration planned and I was, you know, I was all the time on all those demonstrations and got beaten up the police and water guns and whatever and then I was deciding should I do this for uh, to me again mm -hmm. and then I said okay no no I go home and then I, I was working at Prague at the time so I going and visit my parents mm -hmm. and they've been listening already in Friday evening Radio Free Europe and we heard the news about how brutal the police has beaten up the students and suddenly it was clear to me now now it's time for change and then I came back on on uh, on Sunday back to Prague and Prague was full of candles full of uh, national flags and and you just smelled the freedom it was just an unbelievable mm. feeling and then you could be part of all those big demonstrations on Wenzel squares on on Latenska Plan and those masses of people peacefully standing together it was just it was just a great i'm really really happy that i could that i could uh, be there and feel it and yeah so i was in the middle of of everything and at the end before sobriety came 1990 then i came to switzerland mm -hmm. okay yeah what happened next yeah, we, my wife is from Eastern Switzerland, from Canton Turgau, right. and she was living in the city of St. Gallen. And mm. so I came in on uh, 4th February 1990. Mm. My brother-in-law fetched me with his car and brought me brought me to Switzerland. Uh, I had a one tiny bag of, of some clothes and, and a <laughs> guitar. So that that was that was all I br I brought I brought with me. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and then I started to search for a job. So my wife was working in in the hospital in the Canton Hospital St. Gallen and I was searching for a job and fortunately again through a Czech guy who was uh, who was working for a Swiss insurance knew another Czech guy who has like temporary work office and he found a job in a newly established company in a startup which was a company which was producing uh, pharmaceuticals as a contract manufacturer and I started there from scratch as a as a head of a lab and there was nothing there was like a concrete building without any equipment so I got the chance to purchase all the furniture to purchase all the laboratory equipment 
all chemicals needed and started to build up the quality control department there and i had basically no clue what i'm doing you won't <laughs> believe <me> if i <laughs> if i you know you've been trained in theory on the university for sure you could go you can do analytical chemistry and do this kind of not really sophisticated uh, analytical chemistry but i had no clue how to treat the people because you've been used you haven't been used that there somebody comes to you and you get a, another quotation, another quotation that you play the games with your suppliers, push the price down. If somebody came, I simply accepted the offer. Mm -hmm. You know, stuff you would, you would never, never ever do today. But mm -hmm. still, it was a lot of learning. We've been, we've been working very, very hard. The company was in a bad shape. We just started. We had issues with the quality. Ah, it was really, really difficult. But I spent there six years. Mm -hmm. in different in different functions i started first as a head of the quality control lab and then i make some further studies at the federal institute of technology in zurich so to learn about galenix to understand what is the stuff i'm analyzing and i'm doing so i wanted to understand why i do have quality issues in the production then i was running the plant as the production manager and got then a, another offer after six years and uh and we moved with the whole family with two small kids then to to Basel and I started to work in a company in Rheinach Basel Land mm -hmm. where I spent another six years. And after that, I mean, you you had been working for Novartis for quite a long time, right? Yeah, so uh, the company uh, was called Hypex Service. It doesn't exist anymore. And uh, we've been one of the big suppliers of Novartis for clinical trials, mm -hmm. clinical trial materials. So we've been doing the entire packaging and blinding of clinical trials. And uh, I got contact with, with Novartis Ophthalmics, so with the Ophthalmica branch o of Novartis. And I like the people a lot. And I've seen an opening of a senior QA manager. I applied there and got the job. So I started to work as Novartis in, in November 2002. I spent there 16 years when I learned a lot in different functions. Yeah, it was a, it was a great learning. So, you know, a big multinational you get international exposure, you can work with people from Japan, China, India, wherever, US for sure. And mm. you can visit your mother, co you can visit the, the company in, in East Hanover, New Jersey, several times, visit the Novartis Ophthalmics uh, facilities in, in Georgia. It was, it, it was really a, a, great, a great time with a lot of learnings. Okay, but that's not what you, what you do currently, right? Mm. No. So I spent there 16 years. Last five years, I was in the supply chain department. So basically managing demand from, from sub-Saharan African countries and very, very difficult, even very difficult environment. And I, I'm not the best number cruncher. And <laughs> it's, it's a lot about, <laughs> about data analysis. So uh, I, had, I got enough after 16 years of the corporate life and I wanted to work with people all the time. So then I decided that I will do a training as a, as a coach. And then I opened two years ago my own business and I'm working as a career coach right. in Basel. Yeah, it all makes sense. Very, very interesting. Usually on this podcast, and I've got quite a few people lined up for an interview who want to share their international experience and living abroad and settling abroad, I would ask, uh, what kind of challenges have you faced or have you been facing? Or what is the 
biggest challenge. But like listening to your story, I can't even imagine, you know, like when I think back to the 80s, that's already like one big challenge and you still kept going. Yeah, I think compared with the 27 years of communism, Switzerland was a piece of cake. <laughs> yes. Right. For, for sure, there has been there has been a lot of learnings. I say I'm very lucky that I very quickly learn languages. So I was I was I came to Switzerland with a perfect high German, mm -hmm. and I simply just had to forget the parts of it and uh, and start to talk uh, Swiss German. Mm -hmm. And after three years, some people started to ask me if I'm Swiss from Canton Valles. <laughs> Because <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, there's a joke about people from Canton Valleys, right? So basically, Swiss people, if they somebody is talking a little weird, mm -hmm. so he's from Valleys. This is it. So I and this is the funny story that I I people has been laughing about me in Prague because we have the South Bohemian sing song dialect, like we call Anstatt Biologie, we call it Biologie, you know, biology. So there is right. a very strong emphasis on the last on the last syllabs and. Yeah, and somehow this got married with the Eastern Swiss dialect of my wife and out of it came a, a, a weird bastard which sounds to the Swiss people like <laughs> somebody who is from Canton Valley. So yeah. this is the region around the Matterhorn, if I can just yeah, yeah. localize it. Yeah, sure. So I didn't have really issues. My only issues which I had was really the kind of capitalist kind of negotiation. Mm -hmm. How do you negotiate your salary, you know? Why not accept the first offer and all this kind of stuff? This was all. I started, yes, with a pretty low salary because they knew that it was a startup and I was for them like an easy catch. You know, that comes the guy from the quote unquote Eastern Europe. And, uh, you know, I don't like this term very much. But I had to say my wife has a big family, so seven siblings. Mm -hmm. And so I was immediately integrated in the family and I had never one single issue with the Swiss people and never, never any chauvinism, nothing. Mm -hmm. Basically, if you come to Switzerland, you learn the language, you behave like a normal, normal being, you are okay. And I even, I think all those kind of uh, uh, stories like Swiss are cold and it's, it's simply not true. I think these messages or these, these stories are spread by people who didn't made it in Switzerland, mm -hmm. which are sort of frustrated and that they call Switzerland like a cold paradise. It's not true. I even think that in Switzerland, if somebody likes you, the people are inviting you much quicker to their homes than they would do it uh, in Czechia. Exactly. And this is this is interesting because lots of people would say Swiss are reserved or they are conservative or they are cold. But when I think back, like Czech people don't really care, you know, about many foreigners. And I think this is <laughs> something that I was talking about with, with, with Jennifer, who is an American living in Prague and it's so hard I guess to get to them but at the same time this is this is who they are this is who we are and that's it you know we can't really change it yeah and there are huge differences uh, between Swiss people in different cantons so yes for sure eastern Switzerland around St. Gallen those people are more reserved than people in Basel for example right, because yeah. people in Basel are used to the pharmaceutical industry to deal with expats to see a lot of different different people different colors whatever it is St. Gallen was more like conservative on the other hand if if the Swiss people close you in their hearts, mm -hmm. you are there forever, you know, they're very reliable and they never let you go, so. Okay, so with the language you said, I mean, this is, this is something that was very, very quick, like you got used to it and you basically just switch automatically. 
Yeah, I understood Swiss German in St. Gallen after three weeks mm -hmm. and I was very proud that I understand it and very angry if people uh, started to talk high German with me because I understand Swiss German. But that's the way Swiss are. Swiss are polite. Mm -hmm. As soon as they hear that people, is, the people are having uh, different, uh, just different dialect or talk a little bit differently, Swiss automatically switch into the high German to make yeah. themselves understood. Yeah, this, wa th uh, this was it. And then I got the Swiss citizenship six years later after my arrival in Switzerland. So in 1996, I, I was nationalized in St. Gallen. Mm -hmm. And since then I'm, so today I would claim I'm like Swiss and Czech. I've got two passports, I've got two hearts, two brains, and it makes me very, very happy to, to connect both countries so if if i can connect and help between switzerland and czechia this makes me very very happy so i'm transducing i'm helping uh, set up city partnerships like between zlin and merlin mm -hmm. which was the city where was batya's batya's swiss factory mm -hmm. and this kind of stuff I organizing international ice hockey tournaments so we've been with my with my swiss friends already three times playing ice hockey once in Český krumlov twice in in my hometown of české budějovice and I simply love to show how beautiful Czechia is, how beautiful our, our country is, the landscapes, the countryside, the history, is, the beautiful cities, for sure food and beer. Mm -hmm. So I enjoy this kind of activities very much. Okay. And this is a very recent thing, right? Like you've been appointed an honorary consul of Czechia. How did that come? And um, yeah, how do you like <laughs> that new, new role? Because that's, that's amazing. This is again a very funny story, <laughs> very funny story and very weird. I'm a, I'm a Czechoslovak by heart, so I speak both languages. Okay, I'm not fluent Slovak speaker, but I can make myself perfectly understood. Mm -hmm. And I was organizing at those time a club of Czechs and Slovaks in at Novartis. Mm -hmm. And we are having regular lunches together. And I met one guy who is from Slovakia, from Bratislava, and he emigrated into Switzerland in 1968. So he was telling me these typical stories. We've been nine people in one lab, only Czechs and Slovaks. You basically even didn't have to, to speak German mm -hmm. at those times. And he came and asked me a few years later if I wouldn't be interested to work as a honorary consul for Slovakia. <laughs> and I said, yes, why not? That would be a great honor. So I went to the embassy of Slovakia in Muri, close to Bern, and make my introduction there. We understood our house perfectly well with her excellency the ambassador she's chemist as well and but she told me you know i i need to tell you that the czechs are searching for a honorary consul as well and yeah and this was it so basically i switched then and made my introduction on the on the uh, czech embassy in Bern. Mm -hmm. and the entire process took like two years because you need to collect a lot of documents you need to introduce yourself at the foreign ministry and now then came corona which which uh, delayed everything but we could open the honorary consulate here on the 6th of october and since then I'm working now for my compatriots and doing the simply administrative work for them, like uh, confirmations that they are still alive if they would like to get some some payments from the from the Czech pension funds, or people need to legalize their their signatures on on legal documents and stuff like this. And that's one part of the of the task. And second part is uh, helping uh, Czech companies to settle down in Switzerland or find business partners in Switzerland and vice versa. And the third part is just simply help people which are in need from some some reason. So those are the three pillars where the honorary consul is standing on. It's a honorary 
functions, which means in un unpaid, you have to provide the whole infrastructure for it. It's very, very strictly regulated by international law, so you need to have a dedicated office. There needs to be a trezor fix, fix mounted on the floor or on the wall, where you'll keep your, your paperwork and your stamps and all this kind of stuff. But I enjoy it. It's really nice. You meet a lot of people, a lot of very interesting people and a lot of Czech immigration stories are, are, are coming, that's clear, so because a lot of people are coming o over to the consulate, which are now in their 70s, 80s. I it's great. I simply love, love surf, surf my homeland. It makes me very proud and very happy. Well, it makes us very proud to have such a dedicated honorary consul here. It is very nice. Um, is there something, though, that you miss from Czechia that you settled here and you know it's not that far away so you really need just a few hours to drive and you're there but what is it particularly that you miss or do you sometimes get homesick no i would say i never i was never homesick because we could travel back and forth the only thing i'm missing i would like to see my my close friends uh, more mm -hmm. often this is clear and my sister and my niece and those cl uh, few close people from prague and from my hometown but we are a lot of in contact now virtually, Skype, Zoom meetings, writing email, WhatsApp, uh, text messages, whatever. So, so it's great. What I, what I miss is Kofola, you know, Kofola is one of my, <laughs> one of my favorite beverages. Yeah, and from time to time, Czech food. This is it. And I'm, yeah, I'm traveling now. It's very, very difficult because my parents are 90 years and 88 years old. And, you know, yeah. and you can travel in, in times of Corona. This is very difficult. So I, I skipped the visit already two times this year and I would love to visit them by, I hope for better times and for a visit next year. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe hopefully for Christmas. Let's hope. I think we're all, Let's in, hope. We're all in this together. <laughs> Yeah, and this, this this is something which makes me very busy because with, when people can travel and they can go to the to do their normal work with the with the Czech authorities, they need to have a legalization of their documents, which makes which gives a lot of work. Yeah, because every I think the embassy is overwhelmed by the amount of people and the amount of legalization of documents which they need to do. So we are all very very busy, much more now through COVID. So. I would say like a honorary consulate, consulate in Basel has around 80, 80 uh, legalization of, of, of documents a month, mm -hmm. uh, something like this. That's a lot. And now it's, m now it's much more. Now it's, it's even more. Okay. Well, that's, um, yeah, that's basically how I ended up <laughs> at the consulate because I needed, I, I planned to go uh, to Czechia, to Brno, where I come from, uh, to visit my family and to do the runaround for the administrative tasks. Um, and yeah, that just didn't happen. So I had to, I had to turn into the consulate, but had I not done that, yeah, I wouldn't that would be you, and we wouldn't have <laughs> this great story. So. And thank you for, for the word Brno, because my love, my wife loves Brno. Brno is their favorite city in the entire Czechia. We both love Prague for sure, but we enjoy Brno very much. And my wife said to me, you know, Brno is just simply different. It's a, such a cool city. It's a, so much of creativity creativity there and which most people don't know that Brno is now the IT IT hub uh, of Czechia there are a lot of mm. lot of great companies there 
a great science, great university, and the city is just simply cool. It's not that busy as Prague. It's quiet. It's I still international. It is a, it's a very, very nice city. I remember Brno from the old days. It was something for me like a big village. Nothing really, really mm. interesting, but today it's a fascinating city. So I love the entire part of, of South Moravia. I spent my, my year in military service in, in Znojmo. So basically we are living in such, or Czechia is such a great country. There is, it's really w very, very beautiful and I'm looking forward and the travel restrictions are gone and we can travel and I can show it again to my, to my grandchildren. I have already two grandkids. So yeah, so we are, we are mm -hmm. visiting regularly the Prague Zoo, the small zoo in Hluboka, you know, going to the forest, mushroom pickings and all this kind of stuff. This is probably something I miss, going to mushroom pickings. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a very Czech thing to do, right? Like, you need to go at 5 a.m. so that the others haven't picked the mushrooms then for you. I, I think it's a, something which is very common as well in Lithuania, you know, Latvia, Estonia, and those those countries. Probably everything to quote-unquote Eastern Bloc, people are going to, to search for, for, for mushrooms. And yeah, it's mm -hmm. like a sport. Good. And you referred to, let's say, quote-unquote, Eastern Bloc. This is what I was talking about with Jennifer as well in the previous interview. Eastern Europe, uh, how inaccurate or how incorrect that is actually in your ears? And yeah, how do you feel about this? I'm <laughs> For me, it's completely incorrect because if you have a look on definition in geographic terms, in historical terms, Czechia, Poland, Hungary, Slovakia is all central europe so eastern europe starts in the ukraine and far and then more east so what i what i hate because the term is still for us everything which is connected to east it means to me like something of inferior and lower quality and if you if you check for example the map and realize that prague is 150 kilometers more in the west than vienna for example so why are we still eastern europeans and the austrians not right and i think this is just a bad habit that the people the uh, cold war teachers are still teaching the cold war vocabulary to the younger generation even the official swiss radio calls it eastern europe correspondence but they live and they report mostly from Prague, from Poland, from Hungary. So it's not Eastern Europe. But yeah, I think this is our own own issue. And I'm writing regular letters about it. I try to correct it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a really uphill battle. I think it also gives... Um a certain kind of weird imagination because lots of lots of people then imagine something very exotic in the east right if you if you say eastern europe for me eastern europe is eastern religion it's eastern traditions you know it's eastern christmas orthodox christmas like it's a different tradition Absol and it's nothing I, I don't see it as something inferior yes like there are countries in eastern europe that are poorer than our, our country, let's say. But, I mean, it's something that is a completely has a different tradition. And that's why for our generation, for people who hadn't lived through Cold War, and we really, really know about like the Iron Curtain and the fall of communism, it's just all very, it feels like what my grandmother would say. <laughs> she grew up in the 40s and she said, you know, like First World War, that was just something very, very far, far away, you know, it, you can't picture it, like we cannot picture it. And we're still then being labeled, you know, if, if there is a 20 year old YouTuber from Prague and he or she is labeled like from Eastern Europe, like that person doesn't get it. You know, why this is still being coined as that term, right? Yeah, but you know, 
Old Habits Die Hard. Yes. <laughs> this is the story. And I don't know if we ever can change this. So our perception uh, is a different one. Probably most people in the West don't care for them. It's just the East, West, North, South. Basically, they give right, it no yeah. label. It's our, our own perception about East being something like weird. I don't know. Mm. It's, it's, it's a probably a generation thing and it may change by time, but I will keep on pushing because I'm very active on this and I'm, I, <laughs> I love to write letters to, to the editors and so on, even if only a few times you get some reactions. But definitely this should be have a look on Wikipedia, have a look on the, on the Central Europe definition. And we are Central Europe culturally, Czechia is Central Europe 100% because if I came to Switzerland and uh, my wife is a Roman Catholic as well, it's completely the same. It's the same exactly. tradition, very similar celebration. Okay, the St. Nicholas looks a little bit different probably because he has more mm -hmm. of the protestas protestas oh, I cannot say it. You know what I Protestant, mean. Yeah, exactly. Protestant. Exactly. Influence. So it's not the bishop like it's in Czechia with the angel and the devil, but it looks but all the other stuff it's the same. Christmas, yeah. everything, Easter. So we are the same culture. We don't write Kyrillic, you know, it's it's the same story. So historically, we are a part of Central Europe. And yeah, le yeah. let's have a look if we ever could correct this. <laughs> okay, well, that's maybe a task for our younger generation. Well, does your wife speak Czech? No, uh, unfortunately, my wife doesn't like to learn languages that much. So her Czech is limited to some basic understanding. So if I talk, so on the level, my talks with gr the grandchildren, you know, go and brush okay. up your teeth and wash your hands and uh, take the dish and blah, 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 do this kind of stuff. Yes, she understands, but she won't be able to talk about politics mm -hmm. or cultural literature. Okay, sure. Okay, well, but you can do that in yeah, yeah, German. Absolutely. Or your German. Ab or your val valleys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, I can. Okay. Well, unless you have anything else, um, then I would say thank you so much for joining me on this podcast and thanks so much for sharing your amazing and truly interesting story. Thank you, Eva. It was a pleasure to talk to you. It's it's really funny how nervous I am and I have to talk on some sort of podcast, but that's the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> I got the feeling I missed a lot, but you know, this is it. Maybe we can have a second one and make it make a deep dive in, in some very, very specific topic. For example, how somebody from Czechia sets up his own business in Switzerland uh, doing stuff like this, or we could talk about the digital branding or career coaching or whatever. Definitely. This is what we need to do. I mean, I hope that I'm not talking. I mean, it's not the last time that we're chatting to each other online. For sure not. Let's keep this. Let's keep this conversation going. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you, Eva. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Václav. And yeah, have a great day and have a listen wherever and whenever you're listening to Axlander. Bye. Bye.